0: Hi, I'm Democratic strategist, Allie Lapp. And I'm Republican strategist, Lisel Hickey. Welcome to House Talk with Allie and Lisel, where we dig into US House races and the fight for control
1: in 2018. So I'm really excited to welcome our guest here today. We are being joined by Reed Wilson, who's currently a national correspondent for The Hill. He previously worked at the Washington Post and at Hotline. And has been working in politics for a long time. In fact, Reed and I have known each other for over a decade now. We both hail from the great state of Washington, Washington State, not Washington, D.C., right around the Seattle area. And, you know, there aren't that many folks out here from Washington State, so it's a pretty tight community.
2: I tell my Republican friends that I'm from the Soviet Socialist Republic of Seattle. <laughs> and I tell my Democratic friends that I'm from the real Washington.
1: So. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's really great to have you out here, Reed. Um And you also have a book coming out next year. I guess it's next March. In March. Uh, yeah. About the Ebola epidemic.
2: Yeah. it's I'm, I'm doing the final proofs now, and it's uh, stressful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I bet it is. That's exciting, though. Congratulations there on it. that.
0: Yeah, thanks for being here, Reed. Hmm. Obviously, you've been somebody we've been following for our entire political careers, (laughs) back from your days at Hotline, when we read you religiously. Well,
2: and I'm pretty sure I called both of you pretty much every day, every couple of days, to figure out what was going on, so...
0: Well, um, you've been working on a really interesting series called Changing America, which can be found at thehill.com, and um, kind of talking about the changing demographics and what that means for politics. And obviously, we're very interested to know what that means in terms of House races this cycle. So, tell me, like, how did this project get started? What what inspired you to take it on?
2: So, I feel like after, like everybody else, after twenty sixteen, I was a little surprised uh, at the at the results. I had expected some states to go the other way, and as I was really digging into it. The one thing that stood out to me the most was Minnesota, uh, a state that has gone Democratic more than in more consecutive elections than any other state in America, and Hillary Clinton won it by 45,000 votes. I mean, that's a tiny margin uh, in a state that should be, by all accounts, traditionally at least, Democratic. But if you dig into the numbers, it, it totally makes sense as to why Minnesota would be getting closer. It, like a lot of other states, has these uh, dueling factors of a a rising uh, importance of urban cores in the Minneapolis, the the Twin City areas, and rural areas that are still suffering from the recession. And they have been, they have not recovered uh, in anywhere near the same way that that, that urban areas have. And that little factor is what is driving a lot of our politics today. There is a massive amount of economic anxiety, uh, not just in in areas that are still struggling to uh, recover from the recession, but also in areas that are actually doing really well. And the anxiety comes from where is my place in American politics? And I've always found those types of stories fascinating. the the uh, the identity not like identity politics, but the but where does my individual life fit into this larger uh, future of America? And I feel like there the debates are happening right now are really consequential debates. And I think we can show that through a lot of data and a lot of. Uh, uh, Numbers of everything to do with the, everything from you know job creation to bank failures uh, during the recession to uh, trade deficits and the and the current trade uh, debate that we're having in the country. So, all these really fascinating things that you can show with data. Uh, we jammed it into one, and we did a twenty-one part series.
1: Yeah, it's been really great to read. Was it hard to convince your editors and the folks at the Hill to do this kind of in-depth reporting and? How, you know, a lot of people talk about the decline of journalism today and it's so mm-hmm. hard to get budgets to do these things. Did you travel for a lot of these stories? Did you, obviously, you looked at a lot of data, both polling data and economic and, and other data? Um, how did you do that hard work of yeah. putting these pieces together? Well, a
2: massive shout out to my uh, poor interns over the last six months or so <laughs> who have uh, learned. And by the way, a shout out to the Census Bureau, which come, which has this amazing data on on like a sub uh, neighborhood level, like a census yeah. tract yeah. level. That uh, you can, you can. It, we're sitting here in Alexandria. We can tell through census data, you know, how this block is doing economically versus the block next to us. It's really cool stuff. And it's just all it takes is somebody to pull that data. So we did. Those poor interns uh, had to learn the system, uh, which is actually really great. And and the Census Bureau's press people are awesome. Um, And then I did. I traveled around the country. Uh, One of the the things, the, the, the elected officials who are the most fun to talk to in the country are mayors because they yes. know they know so much about their own city and their neighboring city and the history of I mean I learned about about a couple of cities that were um, uh, you know we, we talked during the recession about factories that would close but I found a city that had a private prison shutdown and that cost 300 jobs in a city of 1200 people uh, and that's Forty percent, or uh, what? Uh, Twenty-five percent of the the entire population suddenly out of a job, uh, that has a pretty big economic impact. So, yeah. talk to the, that was the uh, Swift County, Minnesota. What was the name of the town? I'm blanking on the name of the town now. But um, uh, you know, and, and and then there are great stories in Las Vegas, where it, which is a, a, an amazingly vibrant, changing city that right. isn't just all about gambling. Uh, it's becoming a tech hub and. Um, there's a great story in Sacramento where they're doing uh, internship programs and actually paying, you know, high school seniors to, to go work in local factories. That the mayor out there said to me uh, that you know we'll be will be a good city if we make, uh, you know, a thousand new tech jobs. We'll be a great city if our kids get those jobs. Like that's really cool. And, and that what is what is successful in Sacramento or Las Vegas can be successful in Swift County, Minnesota, if everybody tries you know something that fits uh, fits for them.
0: Obviously, you looked at a lot of trends that are occurring uh, across the country, but what were sort of the two biggest ones that stood out to you and, and that would have an impact on next year's midterms?
2: So I sort of think of this as the two biggest contrasts that we're seeing in American life right now. The first has to do with an urban-rural divide. Uh, the, the big And that's cities. been the one
0: that has stood out the most as totally. people have looked at, you yeah. know, the presidential yeah. election. The
2: president... Uh, yeah, think about it like this. In the, in the 25 largest counties in America, Hillary Clinton got three million more more votes than Barack Obama did in 2012. I mean, that's remarkable. And she still lost uh, statewide. Look at a state like Florida. She did great in Miami, great in Orlando, and great in Tampa, and she lost the state. She, she outperformed Obama in those three biggest areas. She lost the state because she'd lost effect, essentially everything that was uh, under a million people, every, every county that was under a million people, I mean, with a few exceptions. Um, so anyway, this, this urban-rural divide, in the wake of the recession, uh, urban America has become the economic engine that is driving the, the American economy. It is creating more jobs, it's creating more new businesses, which in turn create more jobs, um, and it is responsible for the vast majority of uh, the types of things that Americans are exporting now. At the, on the other hand, the rural areas in America, the population is declining, uh, they're getting older, uh, they are uh, less healthy. Uh, the, the, there are some stunning reports about uh, medical trends. The, the, essentially, if you live in, in a rural area, your lifespan is like 12 years less than if you live in an urban area in America, right. um, and that has to do in part with the opioid epidemic and, and uh, everything else that's, that's going on. Um, around there, so there's there are these there's this big contrast between urban America and rural America, and frankly, the two groups don't like each other very much. There is a lot of a uh, sense in in urban America about cultural elitism and these folks on the coast telling us how to live our lives, and there is a sense in urban America about the you know. Backcountry rednecks in in rural America, and there's not a lot of intersection between the two. Um, if you talk to somebody in urban America, they are far more likely to know somebody who is Muslim. Uh, if you talk to somebody in rural America, they don't know anybody who's Muslim. Um, they, if you talk to somebody in rural America, they don't know a lot of Democrats, uh, and vice versa for people in in rural America or in urban America who don't know many Republicans. Um, so we're we're Self-sorting, and that is creating these sort of new tribal lines uh, over which we argue.
1: So okay, let's, let's stick on that, sure. that contrast for a few minutes, because I think that's so fascinating and um, a little bit depressing, I bet, as totally. you were out there and you, you see these people who don't, you know, Democrats that don't know Republicans and vice versa, and it's awfully hard to have a national consensus about things when, you know, you're, you're in such a homogenous and ideologically pure, I guess, area, Right. So let me let me ask you, let, let's focus on, since I'm the Democrat, let's focus on the areas where Democrats aren't doing well, the rural areas. Right. What, why do you, what do you think is driving the rural parts of this country to being more and more Republican? Because as the way you describe them, they are less healthy, they are less educated, they're struggling economically. I think a lot of Democratic Party leaders would say, we have the policies to help those people. We are trying to make sure they get access to healthcare. We're trying to spend more on education. Um, So I think there's a lot of Democrats here inside the beltway that pull their hair out when they think about that. So, what is driving it? Is it all cultural issues? And what is it?
2: You look at the st- statistics. By the way, the uh, states that benefit most from federal dollars are the most rural states, the most the poorest states, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, states like that. Um, consider the states where people are are getting health care uh, through the Affordable Care Act. It's Kentucky. You know, Kentucky is is a number one among among that list. Um, there are. Uh, you know, in, insurance companies that are in these, these tiny rural areas that never were. And, and so anyway, there, there's, there's clearly a disconnect between uh, what might – I'm trying not to, not to pass a, a value judgment on this, but um, you know, these rural voters are getting something from uh, the Affordable Care Act and things like that. And yet they hate Obamacare, right? Right. Um, yes, the, that's definitely and by bad. The way, yes, that's If you poll out it, there. and you both know this, if you poll it, they really love the Affordable Care Act, and they really hate Obamacare, and they don't care that it's the same thing. Um, but so, I, I think a, a lot of it is a sense of cultural elitism, uh, a sense that that the the coasts, Washington, New York, the Acela Corridor, are trying to dictate what is right. Um, and this is sensitive territory, but talk about the the transgender bathroom ban that has been big news in a lot of states like North Carolina, states like um, uh, South Dakota. It's going to become an issue in the next couple of weeks and next couple of years, Texas and places like that. Um, A lot of people in rural schools have never met anybody who's transgender, and it's just not a present issue to them. And when they have a, a... uh, sort of a, a feeling of, well, maybe a, a man shouldn't go into a woman's bathroom, and they, they, they just don't know anybody who's transgender to understand their experience. One, they see one party coming in and calling them terrible homophobes and, and you know, bigots and all that stuff, and, and that's not what they want to hear. Um, and and I, I think, so I think there is a cultural disconnect there. Which is ironically driven in part by Democratic success in urban areas. Democrats have are doing amazingly well in these big cities. I mean, Clinton got more votes than Obama did in those top twenty-five counties, and in those big cities, they are melting pots, and they are they are more socially liberal than they ever have been. And the question of whether you know of of, of tolerating gays and lesbians isn't even a question. It, like tolerating is almost an offensive word in in those urban cores. There's it, you talk about acceptance. Um, so the, the fact is those urban cores are driving the Democratic Party to the left on social issues, which in turn drives a wedge between the Democratic Party of the urban cores and the former Democratic Party of, of more rural America.
0: Right. Well, and especially in the counties that are the, quote, pivot counties mm-hmm. that went for Obama and then switched and pivoted to Trump this past cycle – I think the the cultural divide is so significant and I think Hillary drove at home with the you know her deplorable's comment
2: the one overwhelming thing to me and I think this drives a lot of the political conversation these days is the fact that Clinton was the insider and Trump was the outsider? Right. In in modern political history, the insider candidate has only ever won one presidential election. And that was George H. W. Bush beating Dukakis. Even Eisenhower was the outsider. I mean, every uh, along the way, you know, Dick Nixon was the sitting vice president, and here's this new young senator from Massachusetts, JFK, who is uh, is is the the outsider. George W. Bush was the outsider. He was the governor of Texas running against a sitting vice president. The outsider always wins. Obama was so much of an outsider that he right. painted the original maverick right. as the you know Washington insider. So as, as we talk about Romney versus Trump, the difference is that one of them is an outsider right. and the other is a Bain Capital insider who was a part of the system and, you know, and, and probably did a lot of the, well, I, I know how you can live your life better.
1: And how do you feel that this urban-rural divide plays itself out in house races as we look to 2018?
2: So there are a number of races. So with the urban-rural divide, I mean, how cliche is it to say that means the battleground is the suburbs, right? But as we take a look at not just the races where we know Democrats are going to run against Republican incumbents and vice versa, but also the races that are newly emerging on the map, Uh, I feel like they are all in that suburban battleground where this, this tension between the urbans and the rurals really... Pulls apart, uh, and you can talk about a, a place like uh, Pete Sessions's district in in. Somalia. Allie
0: loves to talk about yes. this. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a, she keeps bringing it up.
2: I, actually, I remember going covering an RNC meeting one time, and in in some you know anonymous office strip in in uh, in Dallas, and looking across the way and realizing Pete Sessions' office was right there, and thinking this is a congressional district. It's uh, but that there you know it's young, it is it is Hispanic, uh, it is. Uh, Growing by leaps and bounds, it's one of the, Dallas is one of the best performing metro areas over the last uh, ten or fifteen years, uh, and that means the politics are changing under Pete Sessions' feet. Um, consider somebody like. Um, Mike Kaufman in in the Colorado suburbs. Mike Kaufman got elected to replace Tom Tancredo, who was the immigration hardliner. And Kaufman was a pretty uh, hardliner on immigration for a long time. And then his district changed. And there are a lot of new Hispanics in his seat. There are a lot of younger voters. It's one of the youngest districts in the country. Uh, And now Kaufman is leading the charge on on finding a solution for Dreamers. The politics are changing the members just as much as as the the, the voters are changing the members in any given district. Uh, As we take a look at the, uh, the, the seats that are primed for a flip at some point, you look at some of these rural Democrats who are in places like like Colin Peterson in uh, Northwest Minnesota, uh, a, a very rural district, a district whose politics have changed tremendously. A lot of those uh, transition counties that went Obama and Trump are in that that kind of area. Trump won the district, but they still voted for Colin Peterson because they love him. Uh, if Peterson retires, Republican's going to hold that seat. I'm really watching Tim Waltz's district in yeah. Southern Minnesota. He decided to run for governor, uh, which means there's an open seat. And I, I did a lot of reporting in that area uh, south of, uh, of the Twin Cities, uh, and, and a district, again, that Clinton won. Minnesota is so fascinating because there are like three Republican-held districts that Clinton either won or came within a point of. Right. And I think it's three, and Nolan, uh, Peters, uh, Walsh, Peterson Ray and Walts that Trump won.
1: Yeah, we'll have to do a whole episode on Minnesota sometime because it's so interesting. Usually in these states, like our home state of Washington or here in Virginia, you have the urban center which is very blue and it gets less blue as you go further out and the r- more rural it is, the more red it is and the congressional seats follow that and in right. Minnesota it's the opposite. The suburban seats are held by Republicans. Mm-hmm. They're Eric Paulson, Jason Lewis, that was an open seat last time and the rural seats are held by Democrats. So, it's it's it the is. reverse yeah. of the yeah. way it yeah. is in most states. So yeah. which kinds of districts do you think uh, I mean look, Democrats in order to win the house back the, because of the way the maps are drawn and the way that the population is is situated in our country, Democrats are going to have to beat some Republicans in those suburbs that Clinton won, but they are going to have to win back some districts with some exurban and rural components to them. Yeah. Which districts do you think are going to be easier for Democrats to win back, keeping in mind that most of these suburban moderate Republicans you know they're in a suburban moderate district, right. and they act accordingly. So
2: this is the fundamental problem that each party has. The Democrats have a geographic uh, hurdle with a demographic advantage. The Republicans have a demographic hurdle with a geographic advantage. And you touched on that with the with the map, the fact that those those maps actually benefit Republicans because of population distribution and all that. Uh, the the big benefit that uh... democrats are gonna have this year is president trump uh... is the fact that it, you know. It it's very hard. You guys know this. It's very hard for a, a house candidate to establish a brand like a Colin Peterson. Like how many Colin Petersons are there who can survive year after year in which the Republican wins your district at a presidential level, but you survive, or vice versa um, for the for the D's. I don't know Peter King on Long Island or right, something like that. that. Uh, there there aren't many. There aren't many of those Republicans. There aren't many of those Democrats who have an actual brand. And that means that you can get swept out in a wave election.
1: And I would argue, Reed, even when you do have that brand, if the wave is right. big enough, it's going to take you as, out because Chris Shays in two thousand eight right. finally lost, and in twenty ten you had you know John Barrow, you know, you had some rural Republicans that couldn't survive. bunch of guys in Tennessee, you know, bunch eventually. of guys. In,
2: I think I think everybody in Arkansas just ended up retiring, yeah. Of running again, um, yeah. This is so if 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 this whole race becomes a referendum on the president then that impacts those very specific suburban seats that that clinton won and where are those seats they're they're slightly farther out into the exurban regions they're charlie dent's seats you know beyond the collar counties in in pennsylvania and uh, and, and they're, they're, they're also, a they're seat, also which in communities i seat. would
1: say reed and i'm curious what your research showed on this they're seats like um, you know, in upstate New York that have some rural components mm-hmm. to them, but they also, they do have small towns, oftentimes economically depressed towns. Do you see those parts of the country as performing like the rural counties are performing? Uh,
2: yes. The small towns are, are in almo- almost in worse economic shape than, than rural counties are. And this was where I get back to the, this crazy thing I, I found, and somebody pointed this out to me, in the course of my, my research, is, uh, the number of new jobs that are created in this country almost entirely come from new businesses. Uh, in the last year, the Bureau of Economic Analysis just put this out, uh, they, the, the new businesses that businesses created within the last year accounted for something like 85 percent of the net job growth in this country. That's unbelievable. Uh, because I mean, it sort of makes sense if you think about it. The older jobs, they, the older companies, they, they streamline, they get more efficient, so they don't need as many people doing the work. Um, but the way, the auto industry is like totally, in, totally automating right now, and so they need even less of the work, um, which, watch out Wisconsin. When Foxconn shows up, they're not going to bring the jobs that everybody thinks they will. And in our state, Boeing is never going to have as many jobs as, as they promise us. Um, but I in, in, sort of got off track there. The, the new business starts are almost entirely focused these days in big, ma- major urban cores. That's because, in part, at least, uh, because during the recession, a huge number of community banks went away, like 500 community banks across the country closed. Who lends to a new restaurant or a dry cleaner or, a, or some you know local business that's going to employ five or ten people, which isn't going to change a city's economy, but it's five or ten people? Uh, who loans to those people? It's not Bank of America and, and the big Banks. It's the small community banks, and the small community banks are also the ones who can who can work with somebody on uh, going into bankruptcy and coming out of bankruptcy and saving a business, rather than uh, you know shipping you off to a, a bankruptcy department in New York or something like that. Um, so they, a long long-winded way of saying these are these small little towns don't have those community banks anymore, or those banks were swallowed up by a lot of the bigger ones, and therefore. They don't have the new job starts, which means no new jobs in the future. Which means like the this spiral is just going to continue. And uh, I took a look at the top one hundred counties in America, the one hundred largest counties in America. Ninety seven of them gained population over the last five years. The only three that didn't were uh, there's a, a, a county in Connecticut. Um, I think it was I guess it was Hartford, uh, Detroit, and Toledo. Mm. The only three that that lost population over the last five years. There are 1,500 counties in America that have populations of 25,000 or less. In the last five years, two-thirds of them lost population. That's unbelievable. A thousand counties lost population uh, because there simply aren't the jobs. And the the I mean, the median age in those areas is shooting up, which tells you that the people who are moving out are the young people who are probably going to start new businesses. This is a, a real bad circle for those small towns. Now, what are Democrats going to do to actually? pitch those people on, uh, on new policies. Um, consider, it, it, all right, let me, let me stipulate from the beginning that Doug Jones is probably not going to win the Senate race in Alabama, but he has a way to communicate with a bunch of Republicans who are business Republicans in Huntsville, uh, the northern part of the state where Mo Brooks was from, it was the place that Trump actually visited on behalf of Luther Strange. He only, Strange only won three counties in the state. Two of them were up there by Huntsville. Huntsville is the home of uh, ULA, the United Launch Alliance, and these massive aerospace companies that get billions of dollars in federal contracts. If if Roy Moore is talking about cutting all government spending, everybody in Huntsville should be waking up and listening to that uh, in some of these upstate New York districts. If they're talking about uh, the ending of you know uh, uh, Corning going away right. or, or um, uh, uh, Fort Drum. Fort, Fort Drum is is the one in Upstate New York. right? right. It's not Fort, Fort yeah, Bragg yeah. is in North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Drum is right. in only Right, right. So so Stefanic uh, I'll have another side note on that in a second. But if uh, if you know if Stefanic is is a top target, great. Well, how are you going to bring jobs back to the area around Fort Drum? Uh, on Stefanic by the way, did you guys see what this Democrat yeah. Democratic Call candidate said up there? leading candidate for dumbest guy of the year, oh, my Insane. god, oh, what a dope. Yeah, anyway. And
0: then double down on it.
2: <laughs> Unreal. Anyway, um, so right, so what are Democrats going to do to talk about economic development? The Trump administration is opening all kinds of doors for Dems right now, especially on something like trade. Um, we took a look at uh, where trade has a big has the biggest impact in uh, uh, areas across the country, um, our hometown, but Seattle. But that's
0: interesting because, well, but in some of those places that you're talking about where they could, I mean, that's a, also some places where people have been outwardly against trade. Yes. And that's
2: the fascinating part. So in, in Seattle, in our hometown, uh, we ha- we're the, the big city that is most dependent on trade. About 20% of our GDP comes from trade. Trade. massive port, the port of Seattle, um, you know, basically shipping all our apples over to Japan and China, um, and, and everything else that comes over by train. The, the, the town, the towns, plural, that are most heavily dependent on trade, we're talking about like 40, 50% of their GDP dependent on trade, are basically all in the rural Midwest, right. uh, the Rust Belt. It's
1: all um, agriculture. Based, it, it's right?
2: agriculture. It's manufacturing. It, you know the, the auto manufacturing plants that are still there. Right. Uh, things like that. And the number one most trade dependent city in America is Columbus, Indiana, where they have Cummins, which makes mm-hmm. um, engine parts mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, you know who's from Columbus, Indiana? Mike Pence. The most trade dependent. So, if you talk about shutting down NAFTA or or limiting global trade deals in a way that actually does hurt our trade, that hurts Mike Pence, Uh, Mike Pence's hometown, and it hurts uh, uh, places in the rural Midwest where Republicans have had the the most gains. And there is the Republican disconnect, right, between the, the, call it the Mitt Romney faction of the party, that is globalist and knows that trade is good for business at large and things like that and the Trump wing of the party, which is much more protectionist and thinks that China is taking all our jobs, when in fact it's automation that's taking all our jobs um, or, or something like that. So uh, the body, uh, there, there are all these fascinating little uh, tentacles that get into all this stuff, but the, but the fact is uh, the Trump administration has opened a lot of doors. Now, whether or not these doors are going to lead to opportunities in the next two years or the next 10 years, I'm not entirely sure, but hey, there's an opportunity.
1: Well, and aside from the rural... Uh, urban divide. What's sort of the second big right. trend that you're seeing out there that's most going to affect house races in 2018?
2: And the second big trend, and this is going to affect politics for 50 years to come, is the the changing face of America, for lack of a better term. And we talk, I talk about the the contrast uh, between urban and rural. Well, let's talk about the contrast between the rising generation of millennials, who are now the largest generation in the workforce, not yet the largest generation in the in the electorate because they aren't participating as highly, and the amazing homogenization of boomers. Uh, when, when I grew up, you know, I, I, when I was born, we had four senators in Washington Oregon, two Ds, two Rs, uh, who voted together more often than they voted with party leadership, uh, mo- voted along party lines. Uh, I, it was not r- unreasonable to say when Reichert was first elected that Reichert would have been a reliably more liberal vote than a democrat from alabama then a republican from washington would have been more liberal than the average democrat from alabama that's not the case anymore right. uh, both parties have homogenized and with it and now the voters are doing the same thing so the white working class voters in michigan who used to be union workers and and therefore heavily democratic are now becoming more and more reliably Republican. A, a, a white Michigander of you know who's sixty five years old is now voting like a white Alabamian. Right. Alabama, Alabama <laughs> person from Alabama who is the same age and the same demographic. Same things happening in you know between Washington State and, and but
0: what's interesting in what we were talking about is how it's not along ideological lines, right. but it's only along partisan
2: lines. It's on, it's along partisan lines. Uh, these are not people who are suddenly um, you know, down the line ratifying the Republican uh, uh, platform from 2016. And, by the way, they're not doing the same thing with the Democratic platform from 2016. But, but they really hate the Democrats, and they really hated their presidential nominee last time. Uh, but, it, but this is a long-term trend, and they, the, these people effectively started voting this way in 2008 and then in 2012, and and it showed up in 2010 and 2014 when turnout was lower and they were voting, they they had the electorate more to themselves uh, than they did in 2008 and 2012 where these ground surges of turnout among the millennial generation, which is much more diverse and much younger and much more socially liberal, uh, showed up to vote for President Obama. This started under Obama. We just didn't see it because it was masked by the recession and it was masked by his own success in turning out this new electorate. So one of
1: the questions I have as a Democratic strategist is how likely are we as Democrats going to be able to get a voter, we're going to go back to Pete Sessions, but it could be in the John Ossoff district and all these districts that had voted for Romney and then you know, flipped over and okay. voted for Hillary. So you have a voter out in that district who has voted Republican for House and Senate and Republican for President and then could not vote for Trump. Yep. They pulled, the, they, they didn't sit it out, they voted for Hillary Clinton. How likely are, how possible is it for Democrats, do you think, to get that person to then say, you know what, I'm voting Democrat for the House this time?
2: This is the most fascinating debate going on that I love to just like set people off on each other uh, about. Who is more likely to stick with their new party, the Obama-Trump voter or the Romney-Clinton voter? And there are arguments for both. Uh, There are significant arguments that – Trump is such a blow up the system outsider that they're just going to stick with him, and there is a significant argument that that uh, the Romney people just couldn't, cannot bring themselves to vote for a party that would nominate Trump, so they're going to stick with the with the. Deal. I think there there are good arguments on both sides. the The race that is going to tell us a lot about it happens here in thirty two days, in a month. The Virginia governor's race. Um, Ed Gillespie is the consummate establishment Republican insider who should be super appealing to business Republicans in Loudoun County and and in the Richmond County, the Richmond suburbs and and places like that, but he's got Trump on his side and and he's and how much of a factor is Trump when people go to the polls to vote for a governor who is removed from a lot of the national debates that we have if Gillespie goes down by a wider margin than we all expect, then Republicans should run for the hills if they if he comes closer, then hey, they got a good chance. Um, you know the, the John Ossoff district is a good example. Very well educated. I think it's the sixth most educated district in the country. Um, that ed, the education gap has now swung people with especially whites with college degrees are much more likely to vote for a Democratic candidate now than they were 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Um, so so you know Virginia governor is going to tell us a lot. The where those Romney Clinton voters end up because those are the John Ossoff district. I, I don't know why we're calling it. The I know, right? right. The, the Karen Handel district. The, yeah. district. The, <laughs> district. Right. Yeah. Congrat- the Tom Price district. Congratulations, <laughs> Karen Handel. Um But uh, right, so that that those factors are gonna are gonna tell us a lot about this, uh, which is why man, the the Northern Virginia results in next month's Virginia Gav election are gonna tell us a lot. You know, Barbara Comstock is watching this stuff very closely. I'm sure.
0: I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit there because I think the governor's race, although uh, w- I agree that it will tell us a lot, but I think in terms of what that means for Barbara Comstock going forward, I think there is a difference. And mm-hmm. I also think there are going to be two big issues in these types of districts that will define uh, a lot of these house races. Actually, one will be what we do on taxes mm-hmm. and the two will be single payer. Yeah, And if we're having a debate on those where the Democrats are totally to the left on both of those issues in places where those are key things that voters there these suburban voters care about, where once again, not always comfortable with Trump, the rhetoric, etc. But in terms of a policy agenda, they're just not, you know, the Democratic agenda, the current one does not line up with what how they see, you know, their world. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really opposite. And I think, and and, and Pelosi speaks to that. She's going to continue to be a problem, yeah. in, you know, in these types of
2: districts. So I think there's this really fascinating thing going on as we talk about, uh, like, a disconnect between ideology and, and partisanship. I think that's showing up in uh, a number of places that is going to reshape the way we think about, uh, about these things in, in the long run. Um, I don't, necessarily think that a voter is thinking about single-payer or tax reform or any one specific issue. I think they're thinking largely about blowing up the system uh, or their place in America, which is a much larger question than any one, one thing. And that disconnects from uh, partisanship in a way that like Doug Jones in Alabama, this Democratic candidate, who's probably going to lose, but he'll come a lot closer than any other Democrat reasonably should in Alabama, has a pretty progressive agenda, and he brought Biden down to, to, you know, to campaign with him. Um, that tells me that the normal rules don't quite apply, and um, I think we're going to see a lot—and and this reflects the Democratic Party evolving to the left in a way that the Republican Party did to the right with the rise of the Tea Party. Um, with the basically the lame-duckness of the, of the Bush administration beginning back then. Um, so I think, I think we're in a really fascinating place where the two sides have largely decided that their advantage comes in turning out their own voters, mobilizing their own voters rather than persuading the very small uh, percentage in the middle, and I know a lot of people... Um, disagree with me on that uh, a lot, but hey, whatever. It's whatever. I'm being interviewed here. Um, uh, but the so so I, I think that the two parties are, are becoming more and more homogenous, and that's a little scary in terms of where we go in the future. Pew just put out some fascinating numbers yesterday. Uh, they found 44. It was a 40 40 uh, something percent of Republicans and Democrats. It was an almost identical number. View the other party very unfavorably. Uh, 20 years ago, it was, it was like 14% of both sides view the other. So we're not just, we're, we don't just think the other side is wrong, we think the other side is morally terrible and doing something bad for the country. And that's really not good for how governing happens. Because when you're, if you're uh, Speaker Ryan and Minority Leader Pelosi in the next Congress, or Speaker Pelosi and Minority Leader Ryan in the next Congress, how do you go do a deal with the other person and then walk out of a room and say, hey, remember the guy I just told spent six months telling you he was terrible? Uh, I just did a deal with him. That's great. Well, that doesn't work. And that's... I mean, we, we saw this earlier this year with uh, you know protests outside of Chuck Schumer's house in New York demanding that he not work with President Trump.
1: Although he did, oh. in the end. Right, <laughs> he, he did. I
2: mean, oh, de- <laughs> some of us think that deals are not necessarily a bad thing. Um, there, There's a... I think there's uh, this is a little off topic, but there's a gener- there's a generational change happening now in the way that people talk about making deals with the other side. Um, that was really evident during the Obama administration. Obama and Boehner or Obama and Ryan would go into a room, they'd come out, and the first thing they would say was, "This isn't a great deal. Not everybody, nobody got everything they wanted." They started from that like, "Oh, this kind of sucks, but hey, we gotta <laughs> do it." Yeah. McConnell and Biden would go into a room and they'd come out and they'd talk about what everybody got and how great it was that, that uh, you know, well, hey, we look, we got this, that, and the other. And the other guy got his things too. And it was like building up rather than tearing down to a yeah. common denominator. Mm-hmm. And as the generations change and as we as our actual lawmakers evolve and as the millennials actually become members of Congress, God help us all, I say that as a millennial, <laughs> um, as, you know, as as this whole thing evolves, Who's what kind of deal making are we going to be talking about, and are we all going to mistrust each other so much because the level of distrust is shockingly high right now?
0: Well, final question, just in terms of thinking about the races that you think are most up for grabs next year, which which one are at the top of your list? The,
2: the top of my list, um, Carol Shea Porter just said she's right, going Right. retire. Yeah. That, which that's a great. This thing for us. may be mm-hmm. my first cycle in the profession of journalism in which Carol Shea Porter is not running against Frank Inta in, in New Hampshire. That it may be – It's, it's to, a whole yeah, new world. To, ran last time, It's ran, a whole new world. they ran against each other but like can six I, times can in I in a row. just
1: point out, before the Republicans get too excited about this, <laughs> we may have a much better shot of holding that oh, seat can I tell you a funny, today than we did yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: probably true. She's not known <laughs> as the strongest
1: campaigner, and this is somebody who wins – in presidential years and right. loses in every midterm election. So, fresh start. New candidate for Democrats in New Hampshire. I'm, I'm down with that.
2: So, there's a really, f- we, we there's a lot of talk about redistricting now. I know you guys have talked about this a lot, but uh, gerrymandering is literally as old as the country itself. And that district is a fascinating example. Uh, Manchester and Nashua have been drawn out of the same district in every redistricting cycle for like 150 years, Mm -hmm. and it's because uh, the the powers that be in New Hampshire wanted to limit the power of the Catholic diocese in Manchester and Nashua. If you put them in the same district, they'll elect a Catholic member of Congress. This is back when the Protestants didn't like the Catholics, and uh, that is sort of less of an issue now in America. But back in the day, those districts were drawn to divide Catholic voters in New Hampshire and deny them uh, Mm -hmm. a race. So anyway, Shea Porter will be an interesting seat. the mayor, the mayor of Nashua, who should be a decent candidate if he runs, is about to lose his reelection race, um, or at least he came in second in the initial round a couple of weeks ago. Um, so anyway, but then again, New Hampshire has four hundred members of their state house, so I think if you just show up at the airport, you get a uh, you get a seat in the legislature. Um, but uh, other races, I mean, the races we all talk about, Carlos Cabello and and, and places like that, and and Sessions and. Colin Peterson, if or Rick, is is no one even running? This yes, no one yeah. is running. Okay, well, that, okay then. Tim Waltz's seat, uh, what does that do? That'll that be that'll be a fascinating one. Um, Rod Blum in, in eastern Iowa, that will tell me whether or not Iowa's even going to be in play. And you realize Hillary Clinton came closer to winning Texas than she did Iowa. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um,
2: there will be a, a number of seats in in Texas, especially if the Supreme Court uh, strikes down a, a number of their districts. Um, but you know, I got to go with my home seat of Reichert. Uh, proving once again the old the old axiom that there there are, there there are second acts in American politics. Or in Dino Rossi's case, right. there are eighth acts.
0: Yeah, uh, we'll say this November for the 45th uh, legislative district. will huge. be really yeah. huge.
2: Yeah, uh, that's in the northern part of the of of King County. Um, I got a lot of heat. I wrote about that a while ago. I called it a, a suburb of Seattle. It's like. That's a suburb, right? That's the original sure. suburb yes. of Seattle. Yes. Sure, yes. Eh, whatever. Yes. But uh, fascinating race out there, too. And the, that's like the second most important race uh, on, in, on this November's ballot after the Virginia governor's race, because if Democrats win it, they win back control of the state Senate, right. and then they have a seventh state that is totally run by, by Dems. That's right. And then Jay Inslee launches his 2020 presidential campaign. It's going to happen. <laughs> you know it's going to happen.
1: Well, um, one last home state uh, a question for you. Are you worried about our Seattle Seahawks? I mean, We're talking before the Rams games. Freed, Re- uh, come They're on. Terrible. Really? They're terrible.
2: terrible. I We haven't had a running back in years. Russell I know Wilson Chris Carson's is so injuries. overrated.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm done with you. I'm done with this. I'm done with this. I
2: am now the coolest R. Wilson to come out of Seattle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Russell, oh, I'm, I'm done with this. Russell Wilson, come on. Really?
2: I, look, I still love the defense. Richard Sherman is
1: awesome. He's my favorite. Earl Thomas is fantastic. Yeah. Well, and, I still have hopes for this season. The, the, we are recording this before the Rams game, so when you hear this, we're going to be heading into our bye week, which is going to give us a chance to regroup and do that you know, second half of the then, season then, like we always do.
2: And then we're in New York uh, against the Giants, and I think I might go. Although the tickets are amazingly expensive. I, I didn't grow up as a for football For the Giants?
1: Team. For like an 0-4 football team right now?
2: Uh, well, apparently if you, have it an, if you have a team in a metro area of 16 million people, yeah, there will be somebody no, who wants There will be share. a lot of
1: Seahawks fans there, yeah. I bet. So if you go have fun. Well, thank you for being with us, Reid. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Reed. It was fun. So, Lisa and I decided it would be fun to start an ad spotlight segment of our podcast to highlight a political ad that's particularly fun, effective, maybe even a little ridiculous. So, for our first one, I have chosen an ad that's probably all three. I reached back into the archives of 2006, the cycle the Democrats won the majority from the Republicans who had held it since the 1994 midterm. I was working at the DCCC under then Chairman and now Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. This ad was a radio ad and very unique because it was actually for a primary, something the political parties almost never get involved with. We had recruited a state legislator, Charlie Wilson, and not the Charlie Wilson that's in the Tom Hanks movie from Texas, Um, totally different Charlie Wilson, and he was a perfect candidate for Ohio's 6th District which was a mostly rural district in southeast Ohio that had been represented by Democrat Ted Strickland, who was retiring to run for governor. So it was an open seat, and two other Democrats had actually filed. So before Charlie Wilson could win the seat, he had to win the Democratic primary. Usually, candidates do not need party help to win their primaries. Usually the parties stay out of it, they let the primaries go. But uh, there was a little problem in this primary, um, and we had to run a pretty significant several hundred thousand dollar effort on the independent expenditure side to help Charlie Wilson win his primary. Why, you ask? Well, listen to the radio ad and you will learn.
0: The 2nd of May is Election Day. Charlie Wilson wants to be our congressman. But a technicality
2: is keeping Charlie off the ballot. So, so just to be
1: clear, to right the quote technicality keeping Charlie off the ballot was his campaign's failure to submit 50 valid signatures from constituents of his district. They only got 46. So the lack of 4 signatures, literally 4 registered voters in his district is what made this whole effort necessary.
2: But Charlie won't back down from a fight. George Bush will feel the pain when you write in Charlie's name. Charlie Wilson will
0: fight. I love that it was actually a foreshadowing of how Charlie Wilson conducted himself as a member of Congress. We beat him in 2010 with Congressman Bill Johnson, who still holds the seat.
1: He does. He does. And uh, sadly, Charlie Wilson actually passed away in 2013, so he is he is no longer with us. Um, but I do think that this write-in campaign certainly made for one of the most fun ads I've ever been a part of creating. Um, In fact, I was told by the media consultant, Saul Shore, who did the ad for us back in 2006, that the guy who sings on that jingle was actually on The Voice last season. So if I can find the link, I'll try to (laughs) post it up on our website. Um, He actually was great on The Voice. I don't know if he won or however The Voice works, but he was on The Voice. Um, And you know, when we did our polling in this district for this write-in campaign, We heard again and again from voters, I've heard the song on the radio. It's driving me crazy. It would get in people's minds. It wouldn't leave their minds. But that's what made it effective. So we actually won the Democratic primary with the write-in votes. He won it with 66% of the vote, and he did carry the district that November, I think largely thanks to the residual effects of this awesome jingle. I think so, too. (laughs) So we'll do one of these every week. Next week, Liesl's going to pick a fun ad for us to – listen to and hear and maybe watch on our website if it's a TV ad. Um, We'll link to this on our website too, in case you want to hear it again and again and again, just like the voters of Southeast Ohio did 12 years ago. And that's it for
0: me and Allie this week on House Talk. You can follow us on Facebook and also at House Talk Pod. And you can follow Reed Wilson at Politics Reed, R-E-I-D. Thanks, and we'll be back in two weeks.